HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is presented by Forever Cheese. Learn more at forevercheese.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast with the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Chef Gavin Kaysen. In this episode, we're going to talk to Gavin about the Twin Cities food scene, how a chef is like a CEO, and we'll hear Gavin's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. In our last episode, 192, we talked to Sherry Bayer about her new book, Chef Wise, featuring wisdom from top chefs the world over. We clarified that Julia did not consider herself a chef. She identified as a home cook and teacher. Julia felt that the moniker chef meant much more than the technical skills or classical French training usually associated with the title. Julia's reverence for chefs was rooted in not only their creativity, but also how much they could juggle all in a quest to uplift and satiate colleagues, customers, friends, and family alike. It's this total package that Julia admired and sought to showcase. She marveled at the combination of talent, ingenuity, hard work, and drive, not to mention people skills, required to be a chef. Someone who embodies these attributes Julia saw as the epitome of a chef is Gavin Kaysen. A two-time James Beard Foundation award-winning chef and the founder of Soigne Hospitality Group in Minneapolis, Gavin is one of the top chefs in the Twin Cities and commands a national reputation for leadership in the culinary industry. 
a graduate of the New England Culinary Institute, who later became Daniel Baloud's chef de cuisine at Cafe Baloud in New York City, Gavin returned to his hometown of Minneapolis to open his first restaurant, Spoon and Stable. Soigne Hospitality Group now comprises five restaurants and two catering companies, including recent additions, Mara and Soka Cafe, at the new Minneapolis Four Seasons Hotel. He has also been the executive culinary producer for the 2022 reboot of Iron Chef on Netflix. Gavin is a founding member at the Mentor BKB Foundation, which supports Americans competing in the international Boku's Door competition, where he serves as president of Team USA. In response to COVID-19's impact, Gavin co-founded Soigne Hospitality's own Heart of the House Foundation to provide resources to support staff in times of need. A testament to the importance of family life to Gavin, his first cookbook reflects the food he likes to cook at home, also the title, with his wife and three young sons. He joins us today to catch us up on the Twin Cities food scene and tell us how chefs are like CEOs. Welcome to the podcast, Gavin. Thanks so much. That was quite the introduction. Yes, I pride myself on those interruptions. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it it, uh, shocks people to hear their life story fed back to them. Um, So I I was really curious to one of the things we've tried to do on this show, because I feel like the American food world gets very heavily dragged to the coast, is is to try to highlight what's going on in all, all over the country. And so I was curious to get your take on uh, going, starting big picture on the Twin Cities food scene. I, I, I don't even know, like, what are the places that, you know, everyone gets told to go and are they still good? How has it evolved, especially post-pandemic? And also kind of where your restaurants, you feel like, kind of sit in that. I know that's a really big question. So, um, yeah, it's big. yeah, you, you can take it in any direction you want. Sure. So I'm happy to hear your perspective of, of, of what's going on in the Twin Cities. No, I appreciate you highlighting that too. I think it is it is often that we we sort of flock to the coast when it comes to what's happening or what's new, what's trending, et cetera. Um, and certainly when you're in the middle of the country, there's a little bit less of that. There can be less of that focus. However, I, I, I do believe that it's changed a lot and continues to evolve, mainly because people travel a lot for business, maybe a little bit less than they did pre-pandemic. Um, but with, with that travel allows opportunity for, for restaurants like mine to get people to come in and, and enjoy cuisine here uh, that are from different parts and then go, go back to their, their respective homes and talk about it. So, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been back home eight years. That's how old Spoon and Stable is. Um, Demi is, the bakers are six, Demi's four, uh, the catering company's five. So, you know, we've been we've been sort of moving along with all of those, but I've I watched a lot of the Twin Cities food scene prior to coming here before making the decision to leave New York City and, and come back to the Twin Cities for the reason uh, to build these businesses. And I was watching it to sort of see <clears throat> what was the market like here and, and could it support um, more people and more restaurateurs and and in some cases, you know, a lot of ambition. Um, not to say that it wasn't here already. I think it was. Uh, I just think that when you get when you get a different perspective to come in, ambition can can shift as a result. So, you know, a lot of the restaurants that are that are that were popular pre-pandemic are still are still popular post-pandemic, which is awesome to see. Uh, it was certainly a, a brutal ride to get through it, uh, and we dealt with more more than just the pandemic in many respects. Once the uh, 
the murder of George Floyd happened. Uh, mm-hmm. That was that was a huge impact uh, and continues to be a, a big impact on our community today uh, and just sort of the after effects of all of it. So, you know, as as a result, it is it has allowed us as restaurateurs and as chefs and as owners uh, to come together in a way that we probably never really expected um, to do so. And it's, it, in my opinion, it has helped evolve our, our community and, and our food scene for the better. Um, just cause obviously that, that's such a huge, um, topic notably for the twin cities, but the nation and even in the world, I think I was still living in, in the UK when that happened. And it was, a you know, a, a seminal event in, in, in culture and society there. I was curious when you say that it's, it's brought sort of the community and the restaurant industry together, like what stands out for you of how, how that's changed or how they're helping each other or, or what's the intersection, at least from, from where you sit? You know, we, we had started a, um, kind of a coalition group during the pandemic where a lot of the twin cities, chefs and restaurateurs and owners would join together on either weekly, daily, or every other day sort of Zoom calls. And it 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 it, it basically started because all of us were calling the same lawyers. <laughs> and one of the lawyers just kind of suggested like, hey, can we just get everybody on the same call? Because I'm taking this call from 14 different people every day. And so that group started out small and then grew really, really large. Um, and we had all walks of life in that in and on those calls, which was really a powerful moment to be able to have. And so when when the the murder of George Floyd happened, we had already really established that group in a way of, of trying to figure out like what was next. And I think a lot of us leaned back into that again to sort of say like now now what do we do? How are we going to how are we going to carry on with this and what does that look like? And as with anything in our profession, you feed people. Um, and so a lot of us went out and did that, or it was cleaning parts of the streets or whatever, whatever it was that was sort of being asked upon us, um, and really start to bring the community together. You know, I, I've, I've always, I've always felt that restaurants help bring neighbor neighbors and neighborhoods together. You know, once you, once you put food on a table, you really sort of neutralize the effect of, of what it means. And you just kind of get people around the table to eat and break bread and talk. And so, that's kind of what we we all went back to doing right away, uh, which I felt was really powerful. Yeah, no, that that that's really great to hear. I was curious on a lighter note. I don't. I have been to Minneapolis, but I have no conscious thing of like when you go to Minneapolis, people are like, you have to eat this or eat here. Do the Twin Cities have these kind of longstanding, you know, like Commander's Palace or Dookie Chase and? in in new orleans or is that sort of not exactly a twin cities thing yeah it has it it definitely has it i mean there's there's a a huge (laughs) a huge feud of the juicy lucy um which other people have tried to do but it's really been coined here and there's like two or three or four places who who do it really really great uh but you know when we had the super bowl here a couple years ago I mean, all of the places that did a Juicy Lucy, I mean, which is basically. Yeah, I don't know what a, my daughter's name is Lucy, but I don't know what a Juicy Lucy is. So it's a hamburger stuffed with, with, with American cheese inside, which is basically like hot lava if you eat it too quickly. So you got to just let it chill a little bit. So like when you make the patty, you put the, the crumbled cheese within it? Yeah, exactly. In the middle. So it's sort of like a, you know, like when you have a chocolate lava cake and you cut into it and the chocolate oozes out. Mm. Imagine the same thing. You bite into a burger and the cheese oozes out. So instead of putting cheese on top, you put it in the middle. 
and then it's topped with some onions and then it's, you know, put on a burger bun. But many, there, there are certain institutions in Minneapolis that are very famous for that. Matt's Club or, or Matt's Bar, the 510 Club, like th- these places are famous for this Juicy Lucy. And they always go back and forth. Which one is the best? I don't know. I, I guess see. it kind of depends on what you like. They're, they're I pretty- guess I can kind of see how for a really co- a climate that's often very cold, like that seems like extra warming compared to a regular burger. Is that exactly. sort of the heritage of it? Okay. Yeah, it's so, they're so good. And, and I mean, it's just like, it's just kind of one of those things, you know, when you travel around the country and you find those little regional, um, those little regional restaurants that are just like, it only fits there. Those are certain places like that that sort of only fit here. In terms of restaurant institutions, I mean, there's definitely some that are here. I mean, I, I, I would say Spoon and Sable is probably now turned into close to one. I mean, it's only eight years old, uh, but it certainly is one that, that is on the list for a lot of people. And we hear that every night when we're walking around the dining room and where people are from and why they're here, whether they're visiting their kids at a local university or they've come to watch the twins play or they've come to see some theater or, or maybe go to the, 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 the art. We have a great art uh, program here, whether it's the Guthrie or, or Walker Art Center or wherever it might be. Um, so we see that a lot too. Got it. Well, well, on that note, I was struck by looking at some of your menus online that there's kind of this mix where definitely, and also looking at your cookbook, there's a lot of French classics, but then they're kind of mixed in with all kinds of other things, both staples like pot roast, but also like things that reflect the the global diet that might include hummus or, you know, Middle Eastern or North African things. And I was just curious how you characterize, because I, I know you have classical French training. Where does French cooking and your affection for that and then your Minneapolis roots or what is hyper local kind of converge or or do they not? Do they only diverge? Yeah, no, they do. I mean, it's, it's really, it's interesting how, um, at least geographically where we are, you know, I love being in the fact that I'm in the middle of of the city, but 25 minutes outside of the city, I can touch a farm. And, you know, there, there, that's, that is where, you know, being in the Midwest is so beneficial because you're able to work with so many different farmers and so many different, um, yes, purveyors and vendors and such. But, you know, like you said earlier, I mean, we have a very cold climate for a lot of the year. And so when it is not cold and, and the farmers are flourishing, you know, we literally go from maybe having 30 or 40 different people that we work with to 90 people that we work with, because then you're, you know, you're only buying beets from that one person who's, who's farming in Southern Minnesota, or you're buying only carrots from that person who's in Northeast Minnesota. When there are all these little different things that we're doing and, and, and working with and working on. And that is really uh, a dedication to, to the cuisine that we do in this, in this kitchen, but also within this market. Uh, and we're lucky that we're able to do that. We're lucky that we have such great farmers as well. And I was curious, especially because the Minnesota climate is specific, your growing season is different than say California. Um, like, are there some things that you get that are super special out of that scarcity when it comes to seasons that you really embrace? I, I think it would be interesting to hear because I don't, I, I don't know what that is or might be. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I often say it's like what the, what the East coast has in, in, in fish and the West coast kind of has in, in produce, we tend to have very much in, in the, in the protein. So, a lot of the beef that comes from where we buy our beef and our pork and our lamb and chicken and duck, it's all very close to where the restaurants are. Um, and so we're able to really highlight a lot of those products. We're able to change 
out those products pretty often. In the spring, summer, and fall, we can highlight all of our local produce. But as an example, which is like a very funny thing to say to, to anybody who's not in Minnesota, like our tomato season really, really truthfully doesn't kick in until August, you know, and then it ends right away at first freeze, which can be as early as mid-September. You know, so sometimes you get a tomato but, season. But if you're cra- craving short. early season tomatoes, go to Minneapolis in August because you'll get yeah. six. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's so funny. And, and that's so what how do you source your produce in the dead of winter so a lot of them do hot houses so we're able to use that which is great um and then and then honestly a lot of it is just working through different vendors and different farmers who are different who are on the coast that we have to tap into like every other like every other city that's not next to those those farms no i hear you i mean i was really struck by we the foundation is headquartered in Santa Barbara and well, Santa Barbara is this little sort of, they call it the American Riviera, like almost like a resort town. It is surrounded by agricultural regions. And there was some stat that something like 90 plus percent of the food that's grown there is exported and 90 plus percent of the food consumed there is imported Mm -hmm. and how there's various groups that we've worked with that are trying to reverse that trend because it just seems absurd, particularly the exporting makes sense because there's more grown than there are people there, but the importing when you're growing so much is just crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's really crazy. You got to, you know, and, and that's, you know, there's a, there's a part of the menu creation too, where you have to be ultra creative uh, when you're thinking about what it is that you want to create for your menu, because we want to try to focus on as much of the local product as we possibly can. But the truth of the matter is, is that sometimes you can't, you know, sometimes you need to look outside and you've got to be able to, you've got to be able to tap into different farmers and different contacts that you have, whether it's in Maine or Southern California. Um, and, and, and at the end of the day, for me, what it usually comes down to is I've been really lucky to work on both coasts. Um, so I've, I've been able and fortunate enough to be able to create relationships on both coasts with different purveyors and vendors out there and farmers. And as a result, those contacts that I know are, are, they're all good friends of mine. And so when I'm using their product, while it might not necessarily be local per se, um, local doesn't always have to win in that regard. I mean, I know who I'm supporting and that makes me, that makes me really happy. No, for sure. And then there's also, you know, sort of the organic thing with the major grocery stores, you often find something that's labeled organic, but the way it's been produced and trucked and shipped, it kind of reverses most of the benefit of that right. other than the, the label. So I guess this time of year, is there kind of a big shift at your restaurants where you have a more, maybe hyper-local is an exaggeration, but more locally based menu because things are coming into season and all of that? Yeah, we're getting there. I mean, it's been a really cold spring. So this is probably the, this is the first week that I can remember where, where we will be above 70 degrees almost every day and above freezing every night. Um, so we're just, we will just start to see spring produce now for us, which it's May 8th, you know, so it's quite late, which means for, for quite some time, we're having to pull produce in from other parts of the country as a result, because the guests want to eat spring food now it's May. (laughs) (laughs) We're We're ready. No, I mean, we've had tremendously, uh, not like Minnesota, but unseasonably cold weather here in in, in California, I just had to put the heat back on. And so that'll inevitably affect even what's coming out from here. And I, I guess what's interesting, oh, I know what I want to ask you is how, 
given that dynamic that the growing season for produce is so short, it, does that mean that most of these producers do animals or something else to like, how do they survive with such a short growing season? Well, I mean, again, they have, hot, they have hot houses so they can grow throughout the year. I, so that's the way most of them balance. Yep. It. So yep, it's, exactly. So I was also curious, you, you have, Swanye has grown tremendously. You've got these two new restaurants at, at the Four Seasons and certainly doing hotel venues has added extra pressure and attention in addition to everything you, and you have your catering companies. And I, you know, I wanted to ask you like, how, how do you do it? How do you manage this? But I also want to challenge you because asking chefs that question, they use, oh, I have a great team. I hire great people. And I think that's absolutely Sure. And I'm sure you'd say that, but I was going to challenge you to say, in addition to that, like how, how do you physically structure it or how do you make that work? Especially when you're doing everything to a pretty high standard. Yeah. You know, so working for Danielle, uh, Balloon, New York, I started with Danielle and he had five restaurants and when I left, he had 18. Uh, so that was in about a seven year period or so, maybe a little yeah, bit Yeah, I'm more convinced he does not sleep ever. I mean, that, that man can move. It's unbelievable. And he has, and he has even more restaurants now. So, um, you know, we, I, was, I was able to see uh, with a very clear view of how growth like that can happen and what you need. Yes, you for sure need a team, but it really comes down to the foundation of it all, uh, number one. And, and, and number two, you've got to be able to do something that's really tough in our, in our profession and, and something that you know, can be really hard for any chef or any CEO is, is you've got to trust. You got to lean on other people to make decisions. And it doesn't mean that their decisions are always going to be the right ones. Um, but I always, I always felt when I worked for Danielle that I could make decisions for his company, for the brand that I was representing, which was Cafe Balloud. And if the decision I made was incorrect, I didn't feel as though uh, it was the end of the world. I felt as though it was going to be a teachable opportunity for me, and I would learn something from that experience. So I've gone, I've gone the same way in how we've built it. Uh, you know, we have, of course, we have a director of operations, we have a court, an executive chef, we have a chief of staff, a director of communi- communications, director of finance, et cetera, et cetera. We have all of those key positions to help us grow, um, but ultimately, to your point, is like, how do I structure my day? Because you know, if I come to work at seven o'clock in the morning, my day, my day from a public perspective doesn't really start until 5 p.m. when the doors open. So if I start at 7 a.m. and I go home at 5 p.m., the guest thinks that I'm off work that day because they don't <laughs> physically see me inside of the restaurant space. Now, when you have more than one, it's chalked up to they're probably, you know, he's probably at the other restaurants. Um, and so you can play, you can play that a little bit, but I try to structure it where I'll spend an hour at Spoon and Stable, then I'll leave, I'll go over to Demi, I'll spend some time at Demi, then I'll drive over to Mara at the Four Seasons, I'll spend some time over there, and then I'll likely come back to Spoon and or Demi and sort of finish my night with them. That doesn't necessarily happen every single night. Uh, there are some nights where like last Friday, I just dedicated, okay, I'm just going to be at Mara all night. So I'm at Mara all night. And then I ended up getting pulled out of Mara because I needed to be a Demi to say hello to somebody, et cetera. So some of it's kind of you're on call and you're sort of running around. The saving grace for me is that they're three blocks. They're all three blocks apart from each other. So Mm -hmm. I'm not moving that far, which is nice. 
And and do you also live in a strategically convenient location where your home is in relation to the restaurants? Um, I, I'm, it's not super strategic. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, you know, I, I'm about 10 minutes away, uh, which is nice, you know, and, and, and that's helpful, but you know, it's strategic in the sense that when I am off, I can't actually be away. Yeah. Cause does Danielle still live above the restaurant? Yes. Yes. Which, which, which has crazy. perils. You're never away. You know, well, yeah, that, and it's like, it's 22 steps up stairs. So, I mean, I remember taking trips with him and we would be flying home from wherever. And, you know, he would drop me off at, at, at my place and then he'd go get dropped off at his place and he, you know, he'd go straight into work. It's nuts. Yeah. Well, and I'm struck by like, that's what you're describing is the mentorship from Danielle, both personally, but also just having the experience of working for somebody who has such a multifaceted business that it sounds like that's really helped you learn how you can do it too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, listen, I, I took the job with Danielle because I, I, I always felt that there was an opportunity for, for me to sort of see what this profession looked like, um, at the top of the mountain and I could do it in a way that I felt protected and not like I was, you know, I could be, I could be behind the scenes, but I could watch the way he did it. Um, and he's continued to be an incredible mentor to me for years. Uh, he was the whole time I worked for him and he continues to be today. So it's, it's, it's amazing when you watch, you know, that there's, there's no secret to it in many respects. I mean, if you watch an incredible, you know, if you watch a sports team, and they become a dynasty, whether whatever the baseball, hockey, football, basketball, whatever it is. I mean, there's a reason that they're a dynasty for three, four, five years. And a lot of it is because of how they who who they are surrounded by all of those years. And then when that dynasty goes away, it's because part of that personnel went away. They've retired, they've gotten traded, they quit, whatever. Um, and and it it's not much different than in the restaurant business that I've understood. You know, when you're around the greatness all the time, you know, you strive for it after a while and becomes it becomes a really um, palatable opportunity to push yourself in a way that, you know, a lot of us kind of get to a point where you hear that little voice in your head say, OK, stop. That's enough. Well, the second you hear that voice, it's like, no, keep going. Don't stop. Actually, you got a lot farther to go. OK. All right. So do we. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with more from Minneapolis top chef Gavin Kaysen. Stay with us. Forever Cheese, a leading importer of cheese and specialty food, has sourced exceptional products from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia for 25 years. Offering a wide selection of artisan cheese, charcuterie, nuts, crackers, preserves, and more, their products are sold in stores nationwide. Forever Cheese seeks out the best of the Mediterranean and focuses on sharing stories from their family of producers. Each product has a unique story, and their goal is to celebrate each one. From drunken goat to genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mostarda to Mitica Marcona almonds, and Duya to Jamon Iberico, Forever Cheese is proud to offer products they love from people they believe in. Their passion, quality, and range are unmatched. Learn more at forevercheese.com 
and look for their products in a grocery store, restaurant, or specialty food shop near you. Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Gavin Kaysen about being one of the Twin Cities star chefs and restaurateurs. So I, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about your first cookbook. And, it, you know, it's notable that your first cookbook is a home cooking book called At Home versus, say, it could have been the Spoon and Stable cookbook as your de- debut. And I was curious why you made that choice, because I know it was quite purposeful. It was. You know, when the, when the pandemic hit, we started to do these cooking classes called um, GK At Home. And I was I was literally just jump on a Zoom, you know, try to figure it out. And us, me, us and us figuring this out, man, we were, we were making tons of mistakes. But what was so cool is that we were cooking these dishes with people live. And we were learning from them what they loved to do and what they didn't love to do, what was hard, what wasn't hard, what questions they had that I never would have considered as questions, uh, which is typical considering what I do for a living. I don't necessarily think how to dice a shallot. I dice a shallot right? But you're explaining things in a totally different fashion. Well, we got done doing a lot of these cooking classes online and we realized that we had 60 or 70 plus recipes tested with people. And we kind of thought, all right, now what are we going to do with all this content? And one of my colleagues at the time suggested that we create a cookbook from it. And yes, it's intentional in the fact that I want people to use the book. I think that it is very often uh, what what makes cookbooks from chefs difficult to read for the, for the home user is that they're not necessarily worth cooking at home. Mm. It's a lot of work, and and you know when when a chef makes a dish, as if I make a dish at Spoon or Demi or Mara, I've got a team around me to help me prep the food. I got a team around me to help execute the final version of the dish, and then I have a team around me who's going to help clean all of it up. And, and you don't necessarily have that at home. So we kind of just broke everything down and said, how do we do all these dishes? And, and how does the home cook actually use it? And that's, that's where, the, that's where the, uh, the book became born. And had you already been declining interest from publishers in doing a, a restaurant or chef cookbook? Or it, it just not gotten, you were so focused on the restaurant business, you hadn't been until the pandemic thinking about even doing a book? No, I, I had actually signed. I had actually signed a deal uh, early on to do a cookbook. Spoon may have been about two years old. So this is six six plus years ago, um, and I was going through that process. And the publisher was great. The co writer I had at the time, she was great. Uh, it was really a me problem. I I just wasn't ready for it. I didn't realize, you know, I didn't realize I wasn't ready for it until I was a little too thick into it. And and and. Thankfully, the, the publisher and the writer and everybody was gracious enough to let me just stop and say, look, I'm not ready to do this book. And, and as a result, um, I took a break from it all for about six years. And then, and then this book became alive and born. And, you know, I'm invigorated now and I'm excited and inspired to do, an, to do another book if it's possible. Um, but I certainly don't necessarily know uh, what that's going to look like yet either. So you you haven't kind of made a decision of whether you're you're maybe a, a a home cooking cookbook author versus a you know two sides of you. But I mean, could you see yourself doing another home cooking cookbook? Possibly, yeah. I mean, and I, and I would like to do a I would like to do a restaurant focused book. I don't necessarily know if I want it to be all about cooking cooking recipes. Again, I I I just wonder how much how much reality there is when when you're making a recipe 
cookbook from a chef's perspective, how much of that is actually being done anywhere or if it's just being sort of read and looked at. And if it's a coffee table book, that's fine. Um, but I think those are, A, I think they're harder to sell now. Uh, and, and, and most importantly, I don't know how much of my, what I want to say then gets across. So, you know, we're, we're in a process right now of creating a proposal for, for a new book and, and, and we're working through all of that. And, and that would not be a home book. It will be directed more towards restaurants, but Spoon and Stable will be 10 years old in, in about a year and a half. Um, and so there's a lot that I have to say about creating a restaurant that's not on the coast and that is in the middle of the country and, you know, leaving Danielle and coming back home and, and what that has meant. I have a lot to say about that. Uh, and I would like to share that because I think there are a lot of people out there um, who who go to the coast and work for amazing people. And then w- when they want to come back home or when they want to open up something on their own, uh, what does that look like? And I think that can always be, you know, worth researching. Yeah, no, and I think that sounds very wise in terms of really thinking about how how would people use and or what would they want to hear in a book from a chef with a, you know, successful restaurant. So that sounds sounds very sensible, and I'm looking forward to uh, to reading that because I think some of the books I've really enjoyed from people who maybe are not chefs in the same way that you're a chef, but have that that very effective thing. Um, thinking of uh, you know a couple of recent books um, that feature the life story along with certain recipes, but they don't have 75 recipes or a hundred like a typical cookbook would. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's changed. I mean, the cookbook world, as I've learned, you know, it's changed where, I mean, you know, before, if you would sell a cookbook, they would say you need to have a minimum of 120 recipes or more. And now they're saying it's okay if you have 70 or 80. Not well, every publisher, well, but it seems a little no, bit. I, I, there's an agent I've worked with who, who said that, and I don't know how scientific it is, but her stat is that most people cook two recipes from each cookbook they own <laughs> at most. So it's a, it's a, a little bit of a, yeah, trade-off. I, I wanted, a, because not everyone's involved in this and we haven't talked about it that much, but I think it's really fascinating. I wanted to ask you about your involvement with the American side of the Boku's Door competition. And does, first of all, I don't know what president of the team, I assume that means you're like the lead coach. Is that right? Or is it a different role? Yeah, it's a little bit different of a role. I mean, imagine, imagine almost being like the general manager of a, of a sports team. That's basically what the president is. So we, we hire a coach and then the coach hires his or her staff uh, who work under them. And then you have the candidates and then the candidate has an assistant and then there are assistants to the candidate as well who help set up the team. And, and, and when they go to cook and compete in Lyon, there's only, there's only the candidate and his or her assistant and the coach. And that's it. There's only three people, well, two people inside of, quote unquote, the box or the kitchen. And then the coach is able to stand outside of the kitchen uh, and help sort of direct traffic. So I think you, you've just, it sounds very French too, because that's so like administratively bureaucratic, but um, right. I was curious then, so stepping back away, I was curious your take on, because the book whose door, I suppose maybe one day or in France, it might be televised, but it, it's not Top Chef, it's not Iron Chef, it's not a Food Network competition, but then it is because it follows a similar, you know, putting chefs head to head. So 
what do you think is, how do you distinguish it from what people might be familiar with from TV and how, how does it sort of resonate in value for the profession in a different way? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, the competition started in 1987. So before a lot of the TV um, uh, competition shows were created uh, and, and the book store has certainly evolved a lot since then. It is, it is certainly televised. I think it's televised in over 60 countries if I'm not mistaken, uh, United States is not one of the countries that televises it. Um, we have had documentaries written about it. We've had books written about, about it, Team USA specifically. Um, <clears throat> but it is certainly not the drama in which, which television competitions create. And it, it doesn't happen as quickly. It's almost like watching golf where like, you know, it's on for five hours. But if you tune in to like the last 45 minutes – it's it's the best part of the match. Mm. Um, and that's a little similar to Boku's door. I mean, the competition consists of five hours and 30 minutes of cooking. You have 12 countries that compete on day one and 12 countries that compete day two. So you have to follow it along for more than one day. Again, I sort of liken it to golf as a result. I mean, golf golf competition and golf tournaments start on a Thursday and go until Sunday. Uh, I don't know how many of you watch Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, but a lot of people tune into the Masters on Sunday. Mm. And, and that's because it's all culminated until this last day. And so that's where you see the pressure, the pressure really rising. And often in Boku store, it's very similar. I mean, day one and two are great. There's great competitors who compete in both day one and two, but you can look on the list and see where the strongest countries are and where they compete based solely on the history in which they've stood on the podium the most. That's typically Denmark, Norway, Sweden, France, United States. Uh, Hungary has been very good typically. Japan is usually quite good. Uh, UK has, has stepped up a lot. So it's, it's in, in, in the profession, in my profession, it would be very much considered the most prestigious and difficult cooking competition in the world. Um, from an entertainment value and, and television, it doesn't really match up in that regard. It's just not the same type of cooking. And how, how, what's the value for the chefs that compete or, and even what's the value for you serving as general manager in terms of the, is it just bragging rights or what do you kind of get out of it in, in terms of, I don't know, professional growth or satisfaction? Yeah. I mean, I've been a part of the competition since 2005. So I went in 2005, I'm trying to remember, that's why I paused. I rent, I went in 2005 as an observer um, I was very inspired by what I had seen. So I came back to the United States and competed in the U.S. finals, to which I won. So I represented the U.S. in 2007. The organization of Mentor, which was first called Boku's Door USA, was then, was then uh, created by Danielle Balud, Thomas Keller, Jerome Bocuse. Uh, and then I served as an assistant coach in 2009 and 2011, and then head coach of 2013 and 15. So I've been involved a long time. So I've gotten a lot out of it. I mean, I've, I've gained um, really, really priceless relationships and friendships all throughout the world as a result. I've learned so much about um, organization. I've learned a lot about different cooking techniques and cooking styles. I mean, it's literally like you're going into a completely different style of, of, of food uh, and you've got to reshift your focus. You're, you're not putting out plates of food for 100 or 200 or 40 people in a night. You know, you're, you, you have five hours and 30 minutes to decide if you're the best in the world or not. Um, so the pressure, the pressure is beyond anything I've ever, I've ever felt before. 
Um, and every time I watch that competition, I leave it and think to myself, like, I, you know, I can't wait to be back at it again. And the out, so the structurally, while there's a team that competes in the end for the actual international final, is there just one representative chef from each country? Yep. Yep. So, so there's one representative chef and then that chef has an assistant and a coach. And then in the competition, is the chef given certain challenges or the challenges to produce a certain menu with certain criteria? So it changes from, from cycle to cycle. So it's every two years. Um, so you typically how it's meant to be is that you're, you're given three months in advance what the theme will be. So let's just make it up and say the theme this year is going to be chicken. You get four whole chicken. This is where they come from in the world that you're going to be getting those chicken. You can practice it as much as you want before the competition. That has to be served alongside three garnishes, two of which have to be vegetarian, and one can be protein-based, and you have to use the livers. I'm making this up. Mm -hmm. And then about a month before, so you have to produce that platter that will feed 14 people. All of that food has to be designed to fit a platter that most likely you design as well. Um, and then they'll come out a month before the competition and say, and you also have to create 14 plates of food that are individually plated of Michelin star quality. Um, and it has to be vegan. And the main ingredient is pumpkin. And then you have one month to train. So when you actually end up getting to Lyon, France to compete, you have the game plan. You know exactly what it is that you are going to create and cook in that day. But every team falls into uh, small little obstacles or in some cases, really big obstacles that you have to overcome. Um, but for the most part, you should know what you're going to do when you walk into that, into that stadium. And so that day you're producing one platter for the judges that sort of serve family style and then a different dish in 14 single service portions. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the platter, the, the food that goes on the platter, it is, it is then served individually. So basically like you imagine we put all the food on the platter and then the platter sort of gets, gets corded around on the, on the, in the stadium in front of all these fans. And there's thousands and thousands of people watching you and it is very, very loud. Um, and then from there, all of the food is then individually plated from that platter. And and then that is that the full thing or there's also 14 single dishes there's also 14 single dishes as well so you're you think about it you're creating 28 dishes of food out of a very small kitchen where you have four induction burners an oven and three prep tables in 5 hours and 30 minutes so there's also some of the advanced coaching that you you're working in a kind of simulated environment where you have a similar setup. So you get used to trying to work with. We do. You know. Yeah, we have everybody. We have a we have a test kitchen out in Napa. Um, so which is not a bad place to have a test kitchen. Um, and so we have a test kitchen out there. And so the team, the team travels out there and they typically live out there for quite some time and then train specifically for this competition on a daily basis. And there's a lot of logistics, you know, we're working with a lot of product that is coming from California or it's coming from our farmers or, or in some cases the French laundry garden, which we tap, we tap into quite a bit. Um, and we're, we're needing to get product over to France for this competition, or we need to get product once we get there because we can't get some product in. Uh, and then you're getting tools made specifically for your, your dishes as well. And if you win, what do you win? 
you win a check. I don't even know what the check is. I think it's 25,000 euro. Uh, you win the golden statue of Bocuse. Um, and there's a lot of pride, a lot of, a lot of national pride, at least in our profession, when you walk away. I mean, we've been, we've been in this competition every other year or every year it's happened since 1987 in the United States. Have st- we've stood on the podium twice. Uh, 2015, Philip Tessier and his team took silver. And 2017, Matthew Peters and his team took gold. Um, which, you know, we had never stood on the podium prior to fill up in 2015. Oh yeah. I was going to ask. So it, there, it, it's kind of like Olympics there, there's gold, silver, and bronze in terms it of- is 100% like the Olympics. Absolutely. It's so fascinating. And, uh, that was really interesting to, so, so when you're the president, do you end up, if your schedule allows going or you're sort of not even meant to be there because it, it's restricted to just these? No, so that every every president of, of each of each nation's team serves as a judge. So there's twenty four ju- there's twenty four candidates representing twenty four countries, and and you know in similarity then there are twenty four judges, and we are we are all serving as the president of our countries, and so twelve of us judge the platter component, and then the other twelve judge the plated component over the two days. Uh, and then we convert, you know, we, we put our scores in individually. We don't sit in a room and talk about them. I mean, it's all done separately. Um, and then we, we t- turn our scores in and at the, at the end of day two, uh, there's a first, second and third winner. And so when is the next competition? So it'll be, a, it'll be one year from this January. So Team USA currently is open for applications to find out who the candidate will be for the United States of America. We will have that competition. Uh, it's not solidified yet, but it'll most likely be in August or September of this year. Once the person is then chosen to represent the United States, we will likely take them out of their full-time job and then pay them a full-time salary to train simply for this competition in Napa. It's, it's so intense. I love it, though. It's, it's like, super intense. Right? It's all like, I mean, yes, there's money or whatever, but right, it, it's all about the passion for the the role right yeah yeah and you know i mean look what 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 makes what makes it tough in many respects is that we really just have not picked up on it in the united states (laughs) i mean it's just it's just harder and harder for people to sort of wrap their head and i get it like it's like when i even when i describe the competition to you i'm like my god this is so much work um so i understand people are like okay that's a lot um but in other parts of the world it's I mean, your life literally changes if you represent your country in this competition. And if you win, your life is forever different, forever. I mean, my wife is from Sweden and I remember being at a wedding in Norway uh, the year after I competed and we we were seated at a communal table and getting to know the neighbors next to us. And they said, oh, what do you do in America? And I said, "I'm I'm a chef in the United States. And they asked where I worked. I said where I worked. And they said, oh, we have a friend who's a chef here in Norway. He competed in the in a Boku store competition. Do you know what that is? And I said, yeah, I competed in the in the Boku store actually last year. I represented the United States. And this guy looked at me and he says, well, then you must be very, very famous in America. And I said, well, it's not the same, <laughs> you know, because his friend is very, very famous. I mean, you literally get off of an airplane and his friend is all over the airport. And, you know, it's just a completely different world. Yes, I will. I 
lived in Sweden briefly, and one of my stats I like to say is they have a similar population to Kansas in terms of size. So that also is a little bit of a factor in yep. in, in proportionality. So totally. well, you've made your name in 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 other ways. So we're gonna we're gonna take a break, and when we come back, we'll hear Gavin's Julia moment. The 2023 Taste of Santa Barbara is around the corner, May 15 to 21. Tickets are still available for our signature events. The Julia Child Watch Party on May 19 features some of our favorite Julia TV episodes and a conversation with chefs Nancy Silverton and Susan Feniger, who feature in those episodes. The popular Taste of Santa Barbara Wines at El Presidio returns on May 21st to close out the celebration of all things food and drink in Santa Barbara County. Check out the full schedule and get your tickets now on sbce.events. Follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for breaking news and updates. Proceeds from the Taste of Santa Barbara benefit the local community. We hope to see you there. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Gavin, what's your Julia Moment? So the first, the first cooking class I did online when we were doing these GK at home cooking classes, just as the pandemic kicked off, we were going to do paella and I have everything set up and all of the, all of the little trays of prepped items and mise en place. And I'm, I'm halfway through, I'm almost done cooking the paella and a guest chimes in on the chat and says, chef, you forgot the zucchini. And I looked, I like deadpan the camera and I was like, leave me alone. If you're at home and you forget the zucchini, figure out how to cook the zucchini a different way. You know, and that was sort of my Julia Child moment because it was very much this idea of like, you know, I'm a chef and yes, I made a mistake. I didn't put in the zucchini. I I wrote the recipe and I didn't even follow the recipe. And so it ended up actually kind of becoming my thing, whether I knew it or not, which was I'd spent all these hours writing these recipes in such detail. And then I'd get on a camera and kind of change them a little bit. My team would say, chef, you didn't even do what the recipe said. And I said, well, <laughs> it was close. <laughs> well, and that, that, that's a very different thing, right? Everything you've talked about before about the difference between how chefs cook and how a home cooking cookbook is both approached and often used is people want it as a very literal guide. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, I, I learned a lot, honestly, I learned a lot about how to teach people who are cooking at home, um, how literal they are with every piece of direction you give them. Whereas I can open up a refrigerator and if you haven't shopped in three days, I can make dinner for four people, no problem. You know, whereas they're opening up the fridge and they, they, they sort of need direction on all of it, which is great. But I also think that that's exactly what Julia was trying to convey, that this idea that, that the way you become comfortable cooking is being comfortable with mistakes. And I feel like the, the challenge of being a good cook or a good chef, it's actually all about fixing mistakes. It's not about perfecting a recipe. That's I mean, right. I do I buy into that or? Yep, no, I think that's I think that's exactly right. I think so often, you know, we, we, we um, tend to not live up to those mistakes as professional chefs because, 
you know, we, we can't make that mistake or we shouldn't make that mistake, but it happens. I mean, you know, if you, if you cook for, if you have, you know, we have three restaurants all next to each other. So there's some nights we cook for a thousand people in a day. Certainly somebody's going to walk away and say the steak wasn't cooked perfectly. Right. And so you, you, you have to live up to that from a professional perspective. When I'm at home, I'm, I, mean, I have three boys, 13 year old and 11 year old and an almost one year old. It's like when I'm cooking for the two older boys, I mean, they're going to tell me really quickly if they like the food or if they don't, or if, if I, if I didn't put enough salt on it or whatever it might be. And, and, you know, they don't mean any harm by it. They're just, they're just telling you what they think as, as they're tasting it. Yeah. Well, and, and you're indirectly like raising the stakes of their palate. So uh, absolutely. Uh, hopefully you haven't gotten any phone calls when they've been at someone else's house to be like, the food's really bad here. I don't know what's going on. Nothing yet. At least they haven't. At least they haven't admitted to it. So that's that cool. that didn't happen with my kids. But it, there was a famous moment where we were staying in an Airbnb and we'd stayed in someone else's house that they like let us have, which was very nice. And then we moved to an Airbnb, and my son, who was only like seven or eight, he was like, "Man, this place is a dump." And, <laughs> and, and it was like, act. It was it was not nice, but it was totally acceptable. And yeah. I was like, "Woo, we're raising some spoiled kids here." Yeah, I know. It's just it's so. It's it's very funny, you know. When when I have a similar story, I remember we we when we moved here and they went to a friend's house. They said, "Would you like mac and cheese?" And my oldest son was like, "I don't know what that is." And I was like, "Oh, here we go, here we go." And and did, does he know now? Is he a fan? He does. He's. I don't know if he's ever eaten it. I mean, we don't have it in our house, so unless he's had it at friends' houses, I'm not sure he's ever had it. Yeah. No, I, 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 yeah, we don't. I find mac and cheese very heavy, but I, I, I think um, I enjoy it when it's well made. Yeah. Well, thank you. On that note, uh, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to be on the show. We're delighted you could join us. For more, you can follow at Gavin Kasem on Instagram. It's K-A-Y-S-E-N. And you can go to stayswanye.com and click on Dine With Us for links to Gavin's array of restaurants. Swanye is S-O-I-G-N-E. The cookbook is At Home by Gavin Kaysen and Nick Foshold with photographs by Libby Anderson. It's out now from Spoon Thief Publishing. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. Video clips from The French Chef continue to arrive weekly at Julia Child on Facebook. And please follow at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. I'm at T. Shulkin on Instagram. You can find Julia Child channel streaming The French Chef on Pluto TV, Plex, and Freebie, as well as on the PBS Living and PBS Documentary channels on Amazon Prime. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH, Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song, New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We are on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.